Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Law. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Today we will be discussing Elizabeth Cady Stanton and the Feminist Foundations of Family Law with Tracy A. Thomas, John F. Silberling, Chair of Constitutional Law and Director of the Constitutional Law Center at the University of Akron School of Law. She is also editor of the Gender and the Law Prof blog. Professor Thomas, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you became attracted to studying feminist legal history? Uh, I'm a professor of law at the University of Akron, where I've taught for 20 years. I now direct the Center for Constitutional Law, where I focus on questions of gender and equality. I've served as associate dean some, too, and I teach uh, courses on family law, remedies, negotiation, and women in the law. And I now edit a national blog, Gender and the Law Prof, so staying up on the gender issues. Uh, before that, I was a lawyer. I practiced as a litigator for seven years. I worked in Washington, D.C. for a big firm, Covington and Burling, and I did some pro bono work there, criminal appellate defense and civil rights, but also did just general courtroom work and litigation. Um, how I got attracted to feminist legal history um, it's not, you know, really a defined field. So I was first exposed to some of the theories of feminism just in college, women's studies courses and women in literature, but that was the mid-1980s. So it was actually relatively new in colleges at that time, even um, outside of law. And um, during law school, feminist legal theory was not really a part of the standard training then, nor really now. Um, and I came back to it Many years later, when I was teaching, and particularly teaching family law, uh, the casebook I use tends to uh, focus on some of those questions, but really family issues tend to be, for me, where I think in modern times, uh, feminist theory uh, issues are flagged very starkly and where the theory tends to make a big difference. So I began to do more uh, deeper and broader reading on some of the theories. And then that dovetailed with a colleague of mine, uh, Dick Ains, who was dean, and he did a lot of legal history work on the 14th Amendment, and we had a lot of conferences on legal history, so I just started to get more familiar with the gaps in that legal history and, and how questions about what women were doing or thinking or what the law, how the law impacted them, weren't really being asked. And I started to co-teach some classes with a colleague in the history department on women's history. And frankly, was just sort of astounded at how much information was out there uh, that I didn't know about, even though I assumed I was pretty well read in the field, and um, that other people didn't know about. So it became kind of a um, focus to really find, you know, reveal some of this wealth, and then really starting to ask the questions, which really led me into this book project. Then, what is feminist legal history? And how does your approach alter conventional understandings of Elizabeth Cady Stanton's life and work? 
Uh, it, it's a term that I actually, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a term for others. It's a term that I use and I think is a, is, uh, a definitive, explains sort of what I'm trying to do. But feminist legal theory is really analyzing the development of the law. So there's the legal part um, in its historical and social context, but using a feminist lens, which means really to simply ask the woman question, uh, which is what they called it in Stanton's time, but really to ask, how were women impacted by the law development? What were women doing? Uh, were they advocating? Were they part of the process? Um, we assume they were not, but that's not always the case. Um, and the second part of that feminist legal history is to look at the, the law in the historical context and challenge the accepted neutrality or objectivity of the law. We assume property laws were sort of just because of property or commercialism, and we don't um, and go beyond that to ask sort of how is this impacting women? What were some of the uh, gendered issues behind that? And I think it makes all the difference um, because when you're it act, when you're looking at that history to understand things differently, and especially with regards to Stanton, there is a notion that conventional uh, assumption of Stanton is that she was kind of the first, one of the first women rights leader, but that she was relatively one-dimensional. She had a simplistic idea that women should vote and that women should just be equal to men, kind of a formal, simple equality. And when you look at the record, that's not the case at all. She had a very complex, comprehensive theory of feminism with all the feminine feminisms we've identified today from sameness to difference to structural to radical. We, we've given a different theories, different names, and it's really quite uh, all there from the beginning of really what was the first feminist movement. Um, I think looking at history from this angle also shows Stanton's work, um, again, was was not just about one issue, vote, um, that comprehensiveness, again, that holistic approach that she really said four key structures need to change, which is state, family, market, and church, which is everything. Everything about society, work, worship, the family, the public, the politics. Um, and so she did not divide the world into private and public. And that has been our modern understanding um, or, or what we've gravitated into in law of feminism, that there's the private and the public spheres. And while we might recognize equality in the public spheres of work and education, in voting and holding office, that the private sphere of the family is something different where we may have different treatment there. For Stanton and for the first women's movement uh, for 50 years, that wasn't the case. And so I think that understanding history and law is, is, from the beginning, from the onset as being more comprehensive, just gives a different understanding of what we're doing today. These are long-held beliefs. The trajectory was quite long. We didn't just invent some of these ideas of equality in 1970 or 1980, whenever we think of the modern uh, women-led movement. Your work commences with a letter from Elizabeth Cady Stanton to Susan B. Anthony, in which she states that, I feel this whole question of women's rights turns on the pivot of the marriage relation. In what ways was marriage reform central to Stanton's understanding of the ways in which to advance women's rights? Yeah, this letter I really liked because it's very early in Stanton's advocacy, 1852, and she really started in about 1848. Um, and she understood from, from the onset um, 
of, of uh, challenging the law and society that marriage is where we get these notions of gender. And, and modern historians, Nancy Cottom and others, have talked about this. But where we get gender roles comes so clearly from marriage, because in marriage you have biological and social roles and demarcation and hierarchy. And that then carries over into the public sphere, into issues of property and voting and protection. And so she really um, understood that until you change that, that what happens on a daily basis between men and women who are in relationships and in families, that it's not going to be accepted outside of the family or at least only limitedly um, felt. And so she thought that women, you can't, Play it both ways. You can't go to work and then for Stanton and then come home and be a subordinate. And so, um, it, it, rather than starting with the workplace, she thought the place to start would be in the family and changing those gender roles. And if that was then one of equality rather than hierarchy, the other workplace, education, politics should be easier. Why do you describe Stanton as a de facto lawyer? Now, this is an important point for me, um, de facto because, which means in fact, uh, in practice or in fact, because she was not actually a licensed lawyer, uh, licensed to practice law, because women were not licensed to practice law um, really until sort of 1869, 1870. There were a few. 1872, the U.S. Supreme Court says, denies women the right to practice law. So, um, but she had as much training and experience exposure to the law and legal thinking as any male who had been admitted to the bar would have had. Uh, her father was a judge and a lawyer, and he apprenticed male clerks in his home anywhere from three to five uh, at a given time for years. And uh, Elizabeth ate dinner with these folks every night, and they debated issues of law. And so in apprentice time, like her own husband apprenticed with her father for a year, and that was enough to make him a lawyer. This is just when law schools were developing. So the usual way was simply to train under a practicing lawyer. So Elizabeth uh, was a, a favorite of her father's. She spent most of her time, if she could, in his office. She met his clients. She observed him counseling them. Uh, she went to court and watched him uh, have trials. She uh, then is, is sort of a late high school age, early what we think of now. Um, she clerked for him for one year, handling his papers and, and, and writing letters and acting as clerk and secretary. And then she, after uh, seminary school, she um, said that she described her years as reading law with her brother-in-law. So um, she certainly got, again, more training than the usual one year. And I think um, it's important that that legal training and that legal understanding was important to understand her contribution. Um, she saw law. She knew what value law had, that law was an instrument, was a way to make things change. She saw it also as a barrier, a structure that was um, creating these inequalities. And so when she gave speeches over years, I wrote newspaper articles, they were always infused with citations to the law and developing persuasive arguments. And she understood how to create alternate, structure alternative arguments, as lawyers do. Well, if I lose that argument, then I have a backup. And so really... Um, many, very other, very few other women in the in the movement had that kind of legal insight or training, or you know it was more from the abol abolition movement of moral suasion or religious suasion. 
but she really adds the law, which is persuasive to uh, intellectuals and to the legislatures, especially that she's dealing with. So I think that adds a lot to understanding how she crafted and came up with the feminist philosophies that she did. In what ways did Stanton attribute a portion of her motivation for feminist reform to her frustrations as a wife and mother? Very early on, she was very explicit that she was going crazy with all of this and something had to be done. Um, I mean, she also understood that what she was experiencing was what other women experienced. Um, that was the frustration. There's nothing special about me or special about uh, my circumstances or my father who had money that can change this for me. So she was incredibly frustrated that her husband could kind of go his own way, which he did. He was um, an abolitionist and, and had some notoriety early on when she first met him, but then he was really just a political hack, political operator. He wanted to be, um, you know, with party politics, so he campaigned for others. He drafted party platforms. He went to um, annual state meetings. He was kind of behind the, the scenes political person, not getting paid for any of that, always hoping to get um, an elected position or some kind of party patronage. Um, and so, and he practiced law when they would need money, but he just spent most of the year, 10 of, usually 10 of 12 months away from home. And so she was responsible for children. Um, they had seven at the end of the day and, um, four boys in very quick succession, little boys at the time. And she, as she began her own advocacy, you know, her work was not taken seriously. She did not have the freedom to travel. She was offered several opportunities to travel to Europe, to travel to New York, to go to D.C. Once um, she became known uh, very early on to to write and, and speak about women's rights for uh, the Europe tour was going to be very well paid, um, but she didn't have the freedom to do that or the support to do that. Um, her father tried to give her a house. Her, they didn't have any money. He tried to uh, pass on a home to her, and he wanted to give it just to her to keep it out of her ne'er-do-well husband's hands. Um, and the property laws prohibited that. So she had had some money beforehand, before marriage, and that was now her husband. So she just should have very, um, very quick, uh, sort of reality shock. This is, all of this was happening because she was a woman, um, and because of the law, and not because that she, you know, she thought herself just as equally, um, having something to contribute as her husband, but, um, uh, that, that, this was really kind of, she calls it her boiling point uh, that she paced, and that's really what leads to her uh, motivation for finally doing something at Seneca Falls. Can you tell us a bit about Seneca Falls and Stanton's Declaration of Sentiments? Yeah, so Seneca Falls in New York was where Stanton was living at this time. Uh, they had left, she and Henry, her husband, left, lived briefly in Boston for maybe three years. Um, he had joined a, a rival faction of the Garrison abolition movement, so he did not achieve success there. So he wanted to move to a small town to essentially be able to get elected to office. So he moved them to Seneca Falls, New York, which is a small mill town um, where her father had a house, a dilapidated house he could give to them. Um, and so it was actually uh, about July 19th, 1848, so almost 169 years ago this week, um, She's living in, in Seneca Falls. She's frustrated. Henry's never there. He's traveling around for free soil or whatever his latest fad is. And um, she's in this small town kind of near um, Rochester, New York. 
Um, but it's also the sort of an area of reform. So there's a lot of abolition movement. There's a lot of temperance movement. So there's reformers in this area that she comes connected with. And at Seneca Falls, she gets a visit from Lucretia Mott. And Lucretia Mott was then sort of one of the leaders, Quaker leaders of the abolition movement. She had met Lucretia eight years before Elizabeth's honeymoon was to the World's Anti-Slavery Convention, which was in London. And she met Lucretia Mott there. Uh, there, the women delegates in the various countries were not allowed to sit with the men on the main floor, nor were they allowed to speak. So Mott, as well as Garrison and some other abolitionists, boycott, uh, not her husband. Her husband <laughs> stayed on the main floor and gave his talk. Um, and at that time, Mott and, and Elizabeth said, we need to have our own convention like this. We need to have a women's rights convention. And, and so they maybe mentioned that once or twice, but then she gets busy with kids and all of the uh, regular life. And in 1848, Mott comes to visit her sister, who lives near Elizabeth here in Seneca Falls, and a few other Quaker friends, and they start talking. And it's really where her Elizabeth's frustrations now are just drawing to a head, and she's hearing all these inequalities, and they just decide it's time to do it now, she says. And so they literally just issue the call for a convention, and they have it right there in the hometown, her hometown of Seneca Falls. They find a church to use. Um, and Elizabeth is tasked with really writing the key document. And she calls it the Declaration of Sentiments, which is the same title that the anti-slavery uh, platform group had used for their particular platform. It's modeled after a Declaration of Independence. And Stanton does that intentionally because um, certainly a document known to the public and to play on the, the knowledge of a usurper and somebody controlling the freedoms of others. So, um, her introduction is a parallel to the, to the Declaration of Independence. And we usually know the Declaration of Sentiments because in it is she demands the right to vote for women. And many thought this was shocking, and not necessarily just because women hadn't voted, but for the abolitionists, um, they didn't believe in party politics. They believed in moral suasion, using morality and personal appeal because they thought politics was corrupt. And so they didn't really think the political process was the way to get change. So here's a largely abolitionist group, and the petition is coming out for the demand for the vote. Um, we hear that, but the Declaration of Sentiments actually had 17 additional demands. So the vote was really just a small part of it. Um, Stanton also demands really reform of pretty much every piece of society. So. Um, equal education in college, equal education, equal access to the professions, uh, so right to divorce, right to custody of children, no separate spheres for the male and female sphere. So she's taking the philosophical as well as the practical, um, equality in the church context. There's her, the Quaker friend's influence of the right to speak, the right to be a pastor. Um, she's right to protection from domestic violence the right to hold public office. She's she's really taking on her four sphere her four structures right here, right? In every part we're demanding equality. And it creates a roadmap for her entire career, but the declaration is actually a roadmap for all of women's rights. I mean, it really hit every issue that is going to come up. And so I just don't think we hear that story. We hear that there was a little start, we needed a vote, and then it becomes about the vote, and then later we figure out there's lots more to it. It wasn't. It was from, you know, just really from talking with your friends one day to having a convention the next week to having a very comprehensive 
platform for all the things that need to be done. Um, that's because Elizabeth, she had been thinking about these, she was experiencing these, she was incredibly well-read. She read anything in science, religion, politics, everything, fiction that, that was available. So, um, and that's why Seneca Falls is now the site of the National Women's Rights Park and Museum. It's relatively small, but there is a, a waterfall, a, a gray wall with a waterfall, and on it are engraved Stanton's words from the Declaration of Sentiments, and they have now recently reconstructed the Methodist Church uh, where the meeting was held, and they, they have a house, her Stanton's house a couple blocks away as to where this all started. Could you discuss the partnership between Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton? Yes, and this is kind of one of history's famous partnerships, and I may be one of the few people who thinks it's a little bit more overrated or overemphasized than perhaps it needs to be. Um, I really saw Stanton as really a very distinct thinker, um, although she and Anthony clearly were, were political partners for many years. So Elizabeth doesn't meet Susan B. Anthony until three years after Seneca Falls. So Anthony is not at Seneca Falls, although history, uh, you can read most history books and it says she was. Um, and that was in part because um, Alice Paul, who's a suffrage leader in the 19, uh, 1919 leading into 1920s, adopt, finally adoption of the right to vote, um, had, it picks on Susan B. Anthony as a better uh, heroine for the movement. And so she calls the 20th Amendment, or she, she calls the, the voting amendment um, the Susan B. Anthony Amendment because she was there at the beginning, but she wasn't. <laughs> so. Stanton meets Anthony literally on the road. Uh, she's walking somewhere, and her neighbor, Amelia Bloomer, is also walking with Anthony. And uh, Bloomer was a temperance advocate and ran the Lily, which was a temperance newspaper. Anthony had just begun, had been a teacher, and had just begun some uh, temperance work uh, against alcohol and prohibition of alcohol. And so they are introduced there on the street. And in Seneca Falls now, there's a statue of the three women just on the side of the road, um, actually no place to really stop, have <laughs> to stop across the street in the parking lot. But um, And they just sort of shook hands, introduced, and went on their way. And then later they start corresponding, and in Stanton says much later in life that had she known that it was such a great partnership, she would, should have at least invited Anthony home for dinner, but um, she didn't. Um, Stanton once described the relationship as she said, she forged the thunderbolts and Susan threw them. And it that was what they, they called each other, sort of, you could see a hierarchy. Susan B. Anthony always called her Mrs. Stanton, and Elizabeth always called Susan, Susan. So it was Mrs. Stanton and Susan, even though they were of similar age. Um, but Mrs. Stanton having sort of the, the social hierarchy or social uh, priority. And in many of the organizations they worked in, temperance all the way through women's suffrage, Stanton was usually the nominal head of everything, and, and Susan was kind of the behind-the-scenes person. Um, so Stanton was really the philosopher, the idea person who wrote the speeches, who formulated the legal or philosophical ideas, um, but she couldn't travel because she was limited by all these kids of his family. And Susan B. Anthony did not marry, did, um, didn't have a family. Uh, her sisters actually cared for her a little bit, um, supported her work. And so Susan could do the legwork. And uh, Stanton doesn't travel until really her youngest is uh, they're in late sort of high school age. And which is many years later, 19, sort of 1860 briefly, but mostly after about 1870, she finally starts traveling in her sort of mid-50s to 
through 60. And so um, Susan B. Anthony was also really much more of a, a good political organizer. She understood the business, the finances. As a single woman, she could actually handle finances. If Stanton handed organization, handled organizational finances, they would belong to her husband. So Susan B. Anthony had more uh, freedom to be in charge of monies and organizations and sign documents. But she also understood political consensus. And um, for many years, they had similar ideas. But as the suffrage movement starts to gain support from the temperance movement, so the Women's Christian Temperance Union and other conservative groups who believe that women should vote because of their superior morality, um, Anthony sees that as a time to capitalize on that um, consensus and to use those women um, you know, to, to create coalitions and to get the vote finally passed. This is kind of 18, late 1870s, 1880s. Um, Stanton, goes, they, they diverge very greatly at that point. And uh, Stanton, because, because all of the family issues from the temperate women were quite different. They were very conservative. The goal of the temperance movement from a family perspective was to stop and prohibit men's drinking so they could go back and resume their correct role in the family. So they would stop abusing their spouses and their children, they would work, they would support the family, and women could return to their proper um, subordinate God-ordained role. And that was exactly the opposite of what Stanton had been arguing for from the beginning. And so Stanton didn't um, care for political coalition. She thought that the absolutism and getting everything right was more important. So so they diverged. Um, late in their last sort of two decades, with Stanton growing, well, more publicly radical, really her same position, and Anthony really trying to uh, really get the narrowing to the vote issue and trying to get that one issue passed. Um, and so they work at really kind of different approaches at that point. In what ways did Stanton's grouping of women as a class show her legal savvy? Well, I make the argument that it was her legal training that that Stanton used to understand how the law operates on group or class basis. So the existing law sort of groups rights by either property owners or widows or slaves or businesses or citizens or voters. Um, at that point, it's all sort of by a group, by seeing connections. What she, what she appreciates very early on is that women do not make connections amongst themselves. They don't see connections with other women. In fact, with the class distinctions are kind of overwhelming. So it's so money and issues. And so whether you're an immigrant, whether you are a person of wealth, where you're working class, those women don't see anything in connection with each other. And so they say things, Her one of her famous speeches was, I have all the rights I want. She heard that from women saying, I don't need any legal rights. So a starting point was Stanton thought that this, that until you could get any legal reform, women had to start thinking under appreciating their commonalities and to understand that the law and society were treating women a certain way because they were women, not because they were of a certain class or certain background or certain religion, but that the, the you know, the right, the, the denial of the right to own property, the denial of right to your children, those were all because you were a woman. And so, it was sort of a key understanding that you have to, how the law is acting about people in this class-based way. That becomes very clear once we get the development of discrimination, anti-discrimination law. 
with the 14th and 15th Amendments, she sees now that we're being grouped by race, black men are getting rights. Um, later, post-Stanton, but as we get into sort of modern era anti-discrimination law, the whole legal standard is, before you can make a discrimination claim, is, uh, is the plaintiff a member of a suspect class? Is there some race, national origin, religion, or gender that is treating this person stereotypically as part of a group? And so getting women to think about themselves as a unit, as a group rather than individuals, she thought was really key to under, and also key for legislative reform to understanding that's how their laws were impacting women. Can you share some examples of times Stanton used the law to demonstrate women's shared subordination? Yeah, and this is where family law really became the best example. Um, because again, some of the business or, or financial issues were very class-based or, or impacted people based on class, whether they understood how the financials were, were operating. But in family law, she said her, her, her speeches are littered with this string citations of the laws of coverture. The law of coverture was what our American law inherited from England, which is that women are covered by the law of their husband when they marry, and so they become one with their husband, which means they have no legal rights, um, no legal identity. And so she mentioned, for example, so she would she would kind of go through all these. So um, you're, all women are denied the right to own property after marriage, whether you're talking about a mansion, a tavern, a farm, or domestic servant wages. Um, all women are denied the right to divorce, even if there's domestic abuse, even if there is a wealthy family. So she had several stories she used of a supposed friend or bridesmaid friend or cousin um, who was really just hypothetical of a woman who was quite wealthy and whose family was willing to take her back, but still she could not get the divorce from the domestic abuser. Um, she gave examples of the right to own your own wages. So again, whether you're working as a teacher, or whether you're working as a servant or a maid or in a tavern, uh, your wages belong to your husband. All are denied guardianship of their children. All are denied the right to control whether the child is apprenticed out or whether you have custody. So she just she, she, there's so many examples where this is all, and the, you know the, the easier ones. You're denied the right to vote. Many women didn't really appreciate why they would want the right to vote. So when we hit the family, this is what she had seen working in her father's office. She had seen clients, women who lost their farms at their father's death to their creditors or to other family members, women who had lost their own, the farm had been in their family, the maternal line. And so this people, women could start to understand. They, you know, because it was personal and they understood that I'm being treated the same based on gender, and so that made that the idea of a class and a group more self-evident. How did Stanton use the legal language of contract law to reframe understandings of marriage? Well, contract law sort of really came into to, to great priority in the law in, in the early 19th century as we sort of switched, to, switched towards commercialization and free transfer away from old English property and inheritance. And so it was, because uh, she understood that that was dominating law in other contexts. But marriage had been considered legally sort of a, a covenant, an unbreakable three-way promise between the parties and God. Um, and that came really from the religious origins of marriage not being a, a, a 
centuries of marriage law that had come out of the church rather than law out of civil law, and then had changed into the patriarchal origins of domestic relations. So husband and wife was part of master-servant, so master-slave, employer-employee. So there was this hierarchy and this unbreakable notion. And she said, you know, that needs to evolve as law now understands things to be a contract. And so as a contract, we see the contract more easily up front in marriage. It's based on an offer and acceptance and uh, with some consideration. And so that's how you create a contract. And as a contract, it should also be able to be modified or terminated upon the equal agreement of the party. And if it's a contract, then we have equality of the contracting party. So each person has equal rights, equal rights to control that partnership, equal rights to decision-making. So she was really taking kind of the, the new developing dominant legal theory, applying it to marriage, which then sort of changed everything. It changed the right of one party to control another, the right um, of one person to own everything, and it, it had that the support of a legal change behind it. Did you discuss Stanton's advocacy for married women's property rights? How did she use this as a launching point to advocate for broader reform? Married women's property rights were kind of the first issue that society in general had been considering. Um, and so it, it, it also was the one that Stanton encountered with this house in Seneca Falls and with her father trying to give her her own money. Um, but in the, that's 1830s, so just before uh, Seneca Falls, mid-1830s, some of the states had been considering a reform of married women's property rights. And uh, married women normally, uh, default rule had been they had no property rights at marriage. And the Married Women's Property Act were to allow them to maintain separate property, so property they brought into marriage or property they inherited. And it was really coming out of Mississippi as a slave state wanting to maintain slaves in the uh, mother's family line. Uh, later it became to allow wealthy Sort of in New York, one of the key uh, groups in support of it were uh, wealthy landowners, fathers who didn't have uh, male sons to pass on their property to. So there were uh, different kinds of groups behind this. And so as she, after Seneca Falls, as she enters immediately now this kind of women's rights advocacy, New York as well as other states are debating married women's property. So she joins in, um, although her advocacy was, all, as always, much more comprehensive. She didn't just say women were entitled to the same separate rights of prior, previously owned property, um, but they should have rights to joint property. So once you enter the marital par- partnership, it's like a business partnership, and each party owns the other's property equally. Um, she said that they should also own in- earned income, wages or any kind of other earned income at the time. The Married Women's Property Act eventually get to each party owning their own wages based on who earns it, but that it's, it's several decades before they get to that second and third generation statute. Um, and so Stanton's asked early on to speak to the New York legislature in support of the Married Women's Property Act. Uh, some of the men in the legislature who knew her father um, asked, and as well as some other connections, said that we, we need to hear from you. We would like women to speak on behalf of it. Um, and she immediately jumps not into just various property issues, but says that everything, all of coverture needs to be changed. She uses it as an opportunity to reiterate many of the things she had said in the Declaration of Sentiment. 
We need custody, maternal custody rights. We need equal guardianship rights. We need to get rid of separate spheres. We need domestic violence laws. She just, everything. She, she takes on coverture and the whole legal status of women. And for her, she said this was, marital property was the toehold. It was the door through which all of women's rights would, would enter because it was an issue that people were now debating around the dinner table, right? It was something that was for the first time that people, regular families, business people, legislatures were, were talking about, and it was because it was personal. People understood their own daughters or their, their own issues themselves, and so it allowed her the opportunity. So from the beginning, she used that as really her launching point to say, you understand it in this context. Let me, let's, let's show how it's true also in all these others. Could you discuss Stanton's position on divorce and her reasoning for this position? Yes, yeah, Stanton was a ardent advocate of divorce, both um, equal divorce. Uh, the divorce standards were different for men and women. So, example, um, for a man to divorce his wife, she had to, for adultery, she need only commit one act. Uh, for a woman to divorce her husband, she had to show multiple acts because boys will be boys. Um, they're allowed, we understand men will cheat, and so they're allowed to have adulterous affairs, so you have to show a pattern and a practice. And um, So she first wanted to equalize the standards uh, that were not based on a double standard of morality. But very, from the beginning, she also advocated no-fault divorce, that the mutual agreement of the parties for no reason, no fault, they should be able to terminate the relationship. And that came first out of her experience in the temperance movement and domestic violence. Right after Seneca Falls, 1851-1852, she was head of the New York Temperance Organization. And what she really took away from understanding, hearing about the, the abuse that women and children experienced from uh, drunk fathers and husbands uh, was that they needed out. And she wanted a solution and she wanted it now. And she thought that banning alcohol, you know, was, was fine. Um, but that was the long way around it. And so she very quickly used that platform to advocate for divorce and not just to advocate for the right, but that it was a duty. She told the temperance women that it was their duty to God and to their children to protect their children and themselves by leaving a marriage that was like that. And that actually resonated with not just the women, but it resonated with legislatures that women need to be able to be protected, children need, because it fits. It fits the gender norm that we're trying to protect women, we're trying to protect children and protect families. So there was, um, that actually resulted in many legislatures at least adding some additional fault grounds, like cruelty, which was really meant initially to be like domestic violence. But that was not the only context where she saw divorce. I mean, she saw it any time. It's because she didn't think marriage was necessarily a good thing. I mean, marriage, she had this ideal of marriage, what we think of today, a soulmate, an equal partnership, equal respect. But she also saw that it was a trap because when you are married, you lose all legal identity and all legal rights. And so she didn't want women to have to remain in marriages if they didn't want to be there. And so she wanted an easy out. And so she said, absolutely, I'm a supporter of easy divorce or free divorce. Um, and, and then her legal series of contracts easily backed that up, right? So that if it's just a mutual agreement, when the agreement of one of the parties has changed, we should be able, she should be able to divorce her spouse. And it's not a sin 
Uh, she argued against this religious notion that it was a sin, that it was something wrong. She engaged with the biblical scholars. She used a lot of Milton, John Milton, from many centuries before, who had challenged the Puritan notions of divorce. Uh, but interestingly, she never chose divorce for herself. Now, she and Henry, um, besides his just wandering around for political fame, um, they eventually got to a point where they had just separated physically, um, permanently in, in their relationship. After the Civil War, Henry gets into a big scandal with some bride. He gets a political patronage job in the Port Authority in New York City, um, and he and his eldest son, who he employs, are implicated in taking bribes. And that's sort of the final straw for, for Stanton. So she buys her own house in New Jersey, Tenafly, right outside of the city. And Henry lives in the city uh, with a couple of his sons who were practicing law with him. He's uh, no longer practicing law. He becomes a journalist. And Henry, they, they, he visits Stanton's home when there's large family gatherings, Christmas, July 4th. They're really completely separated. Uh, but she never divorces him. Um, she never really, and, and, you know, there's a question, did she, not really, did she not want the social stigma? Uh, she said briefly once there was no one else she wanted to marry, so uh, why bother, or <laughs> something like that. But um, but she was, she became, she, she advocated easy and free divorce from the beginning, one of her very first articles, uh, to the day she died, her last day, she was writing in support of free divorce. In what ways did Stanton advocate for a woman's ability to own her own body? Yeah, Stanton coins this terminology to try to um, understand women's right to sort of reproductive control. And she joins, uh, there is a voluntary motherhood movement uh, that, that's all sort of coalescing at this time against un, against involuntary motherhood, which is when um, the, the social and legal conventions that when you married a woman, you also owned her body. And so that meant that a husband had sexual privilege. He was allowed to sexual relations whenever he demanded. Um, a woman who was married, there was no such thing as marital rape. A woman who was married always gave, had given consent by the marriage itself. And so uh, the voluntary motherhood was that women would get to choose the time of sexual relations. And so it was really countercultural to this sexual privilege. So Stanton agrees with all of that. But then she takes it kind of to the next step that says um, women, own the, they own that right singularly to control when their body um, is used or when it is gazed, you know, when it can be pregnant because women are the ones who bear the children. Women are the ones who nurture the children and care for them by social convention. And um, so she, so that ownership kind of feeds again into the law. We're talking about property or kind of turning the coverture idea on its head that it's now you don't own your wife, she owns herself. Um, if it's some of the anti-slavery uh, language in, that she had sort of grown up in. Um, Stanton expands that, though, into also enlightened, what she calls enlightened motherhood, which is that you, once you own your own body and, it's, and control its sexual relations, you also should then use those for good. And that motherhood is a very creative process, but you have a duty to produce healthy children and not just a bunch of children and not... And this is at a point of time as we're starting to get into immigration and nativism where white Protestant women are told, you need to have a lot of children. We need a lot of white children to counter the tide and more is better. And or sort of she didn't also sell a lot of very poor women 
who, with this sort of unrestrained sexual privilege of husbands, were having 14, 15, 16 children, um, which happens with no birth control. And but they couldn't, you know, they were impoverished, so the children were starving. They were such suffering, and so she said, you know, going back to duty and back to things women were hearing in church and with social mores, that your duty is to have healthy quality children, she used the word, um, you know, to control that process. And this is as eugenics as a field is beginning, and at least at the very early stages, it was sort of an optimistic idea that that if we, that this could be defects like mental illness or criminality could be bred out by not having sort of a drunk husband have 14 children just by sexual privilege. So um, she tried to really give women not only power, but show that the power of, of sexual reproduction and procreative control should be used for good. Can you explain Stanton's theory of maternal agency? In what ways did she portray maternity as a power rather than a weakness? Yeah, and this may sound a little more familiar to us today, but at the time, certainly maternity was a curse, a disability, an incompetence, right? So the church's teachings, um, and not just, you know, the church really dominated social understanding because not just because more people went to church, but because it was sort of the, the basis of social norms. And so the teachings were that maternity was God's curse for women bringing original sin into the world. So maternity was a punishment. Women were weak. They needed suffering for their sins. Um, and so that it was a bad thing. And Stanton really she took two parts of the fun. She first took on the idea that the church's teachings in general um, and challenged church dogma, which said that's not what Jesus said. That's not what the gospel says. That's actually not what God said. Um, and she wasn't a particularly religious person, but she was trying to show how men had manipulated um, the original teachings for their own power. And she thought, maybe this is why here I am, even 80 years old, and I haven't accomplished anything much. Um, because women still believe this. They still believe they're inferior. And why? Because they're hearing this message that maternity is their punishment, is a curse. And instead, she said, no, maternity is power. It's creative power. You have the ability to make life and nurture life that men do not. Um, and that is an important power. And that, that also then justifies women's power in, in public, in, in politics, because they have this good, positive, um, creative um, ability. And so she, so it was maternal agency. Again, that gives you the right to act. That gives you the justification to act. And it's all very good and very powerful. And that she then encouraged women to use that agency to change the future by raising up the next generation. Uh, sounds to us very sort of modern again, but we have to put ourselves back, you know, 150 years ago. Um, she said that, that mothers need to then raise their children differently. Girls need to play sports, climb trees, learn science, go to gym class. Boys need to learn music and art and manners. But the same virtues, the same norms should be taught to both genders. And if we just raise up the next generation that way, these, you know, these segregated gender norms will kind of be taught out. And she spent um, 1870 to 1880 traveling the country on a lyceum tour, uh, 11 months of the year, giving speeches called Our Girls and Our Boys, speaking to women and trying to encourage them to, to really gravitate to this agency and use their power as mothers 
to really change the expected norm. Um, she draws a little bit on an idea of the matriarchate that had come out. Uh, it was new archaeological research um, showing some earlier matrilineal societies that passed property and power through women, um, one including like sort of the Amazon legend, sort of the Wonder Woman legend, um, which had some basis in a little bit of some island communities uh, that were matrilineal. Um, and Stanton really grabs onto this to say, see, the, the reason women were in power because of their procreative power, because they could give life, and that's what justified their power. Uh, the problem was the archaeologists and the scientists, mostly German at the time, actually used this to the opposite end. They said that that matrilineal society failed because it did not engage in war and, and property ownership, and so that it really was the superiority of patriarchy that takes over that's better. But Stanton ignores that part of the theory and focuses on kind of this maternal power. How did Stanton address arguments that the political equality of women would destroy the family? You know, she kind of argued out both sides of her mouth. She would get very frustrated with this because this is the really the largest political and legislative stumbling block. Um, as it has been in modern times, uh, with the ERA debate, you heard formal equality meant the downfall of families and men's obligation to the family or to forced abortions or, um, and, or work-life balance today. So, um, it was kind of, a, she was sort of frustrated because she just thought it was a false, uh, dichotomy that was set up. But she argued both times. First, she would, if she was in a sort of a, a patient tone, she would say, no worries, the families aren't going to change by this. Families are strong. Men and women have always loved each other. They've always been attracted to each other. Um, they always want to have kids. And so that's going to happen no matter what. And they can handle a little bit of change in being equal. It'll all be good. Um, at other times, she would just say, you know, you're right. It's going to change things pretty radically. And that's exactly what it needs to do. Um, because if we can't change families, we can't change everything else. And they'll be better for it. Um, but, yeah, it, it's going to change. So. Again, you can show she's she's not always politic. She's she's not wanting to appease people. She's often uh, more of the radical revolutionary, but um, her, her tone kind of changes depending on the context. Could you discuss Stanton's interactions with race and abolition? How has her position on the Fifteenth Amendment impacted her legacy? Now, this is probably the the one thing that people may um, know more about these days, and it has really been quite. Um, dramatically clouded her legacy. Um, in, in, to go back before the 15th Amendment, I mean, Stanton worked in the abolition movement, more on the, on the periphery. I mean, her husband was a huge abolitionist. All of the women's rights reformers, most of them came from the abolition movement. Um, she was certainly, uh, during the Civil War, she worked for abolition. She put aside women's rights uh, to her detriment because New York then uh, repealed several laws uh, for married women's property rights and guardianship. But she was certainly in support of abolition. She was in support of racial equality. She spoke about um, equal rights to all people, equal rights, human rights, regardless of race. Um, so there's many uh, evidence of that support. She particularly would emphasize the rights of black women um, because they seem to not be, you know, part of the, the discourse. It was more about black men, but she said, you know, remember the black women as well. They will be empowered by this. Um, so she, she I, th I think her true belief was in the equality of that. What happened was, after the Civil War, the universal suffrage movement breaks up. And so 
There's a brief time where the abolition and anti-slavery movement then moved for universal suffrage, meaning universal for everyone. But mainly it was about women, both women and black. So um, immigrant was a little bit of a question, but <laughs> technically universal meant everyone. Um, but after the Civil War, the congressional leadership and all the political impetus is just toward the Negro vote. Um, and the universal movement abandons women because they see the political opportunity here to get something done. And so it's politically expedient to go with that. And they tell women, you know, wait your turn, we'll get to you next. And some women did. Uh, Lucy Stone in particular um, disagrees with Stanton and, and goes off and starts her own women's suffrage organization, the American, that worked initially for Negro suffrage and then after the 15th Amendment works for women's suffrage. You know, Stanton is, is just outraged. I mean, she, she's sort of uh, beside herself that her colleagues that she's worked with for now 30-some years uh, would abandon universal suffrage right when it's actually possible and that women would be put second and that the 15th Amendment, which proposes uh, voting rights for black men, um, regardless of race, but it means black men because women are not authorized at this time, um, would create a new, what she called the aristocracy of sex. That's the first time in the Constitution that we're actually creating a difference based on sex and where women are second. Um, so at first she tries to sort of point out, you guys are missing black women. You know, they're part of the group you're trying to enfranchise as well. Do you think all members of the Negro race are just men? Um, but then she just really gets very inflammatory um, in her speeches. Um, we have three or four that are particularly inflammatory. She's trying to sort of, I think, um, shock her audience, which is mostly white male voters, into understanding, which is all white male voters, <laughs> into understanding what are you doing. Do you understand what you're doing? Um, and she says you're giving the vote to an uneducated former black slave, but you're not giving it to your educated sister. I mean, what are you thinking? And, and, and you know, of course, she's the, the educated sister. And so um, she uses language that's very stereotypical. How would Sambo have the right and Lucretia Mott does not? Um, and her abolitionist colleagues are really shocked by all this, that she would speak this way, that she would um, really resort to all of that in support of her own cause. Um, and they really abandon her. And um, she refuses to support the 15th Amendment, um, but it's really the way in which she doesn't support it. Now, there were other um, women who, who went along with her. There were other black men who supported, um, who opposed the 15th Amendment for that reason, that it needed to be universal. But she really kind of um, uses language that didn't fit uh, how she otherwise talked about equality. And in modern times, when this evidence in, in the 1980s, when we kind of recovered a lot of women's history, and recovered uh, this kind of part of the record, um, women historians very quickly rejected Stanton as a heroine, right? Um, she doesn't fit our image of the perfect human rights person, and we kind of left her there. Uh, we, we got her biography, and we got a little bit of this, and then really not much work was done on Stanton, despite her voluminous record on so many issues. Um, you know, my own view is that, you know, history is not really about reifying heroes. It's really about uh, telling it like it is. I mean, it is what it is, and people are not perfect, and we don't have to take everything. I mean, Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings is kind of the classic example, right, that you can do great good um, while also having some sort of racist and other, you know, things that we don't want to promote. But um, it has certainly damaged her legacy 
uh, and mainly has shut down interest in understanding the rest, um, you know, her theories on market work or her theories on the church or religion. I mean, there's a lot more there to appreciate about her contributions. Can you connect Stanton's reform efforts to modern-day feminist methodologies? Yes, and I uh, kind of spent a lot of time emphasizing this, and um, this is sort of the lawyer part versus the historians. Historians don't to, don't like presentism, where we try to you know take the present and, and impose it on the past. But it was important to me that I saw the way that she was using her legal training and the way she was analyzing the issues is what we now think of as, as feminist theory and, and methodology. And by that, some of the key methodologies that we use in feminist theory is you know, first consciousness raising or narrative, you know, get women to tell their story. Women's story is important. We need to hear how we got the laws of sexual harassment or the laws against domestic violence, what's happening to women. We need to hear their story, and it's important. Their narrative is relevant. Um, second methodology was to, to ask that women's question, not just that women are talking amongst themselves, but the law or the church or the market needs to say, how is this impacting women? And then deconstruction, and Stanton was so good at this, um, it wishes to break down those objective standards and look behind that. And she, she said that about marriage. She called marriage man marriage because it was made for men and by men. It gave men all the rights. She said it was biased. It was to support their privilege. Um, that's what we look for. We look behind the objective to say why is this created? How is it impacting women? Is there a bias or reason why you give men all the rights and not women? You know, men are the legislature. So, um, and then looking for that privilege, that notion that men are being privileged by gender. And, and that's really kind of all what we do today and, and how we go about, uh, we call it, you know, hermeneutics, we call it other terminology, but we're really looking for these key methods and how we analyze a problem. Have any of Stanton's promoted family law reforms become contemporary law? And, and yes, virtually all of them, all but one. Um, I counted at least about 12 to 13 very specific reforms of family law. Um, and 12 of those are now our law. Uh, the one that didn't become law is she proposed changing the minimum age for marriage to 25. Uh, 25, she said, is when people, really, girls and boys, really reach their full maturity. Of course, neuroscience now tells us exactly that, that 25 is really when all of those early impulses and the full maturity of the brain. Um, but we still have laws that allow marriage at 12, 13, and 16. That's kind of a common law rule. There's been some recent changes, actually. A few states um, have been trying to change that and have gotten a lot of backlash. Um, but her other 12 reforms, very specifically on family law, really were to eliminate most of coverture. So we eliminated dower to equal survivor rights after the death of a partner, marital property, both separate and joint at divorce. Child custody is based on the best interest, so equal rights to both parents. Guardianship to both parents, no-fault divorce, equal divorce, we have a fault ground, domestic violence protections. Um, she eliminated, advocated eliminating common law marriage because she didn't want women trapped without without having to go through the procedures of the license, et cetera, for civil marriage, um, right to control procreation. So all of those she proposed, and they're all the law. Um, there were a few others as well, sort of not family per se, but things like women on juries, women as lawyers, women as judges, women as legislatures, women in law schools, women allowed to testify. You were barred by the marital privilege from testifying against your spouse. So those were also sort of adjunct reforms that would help, that are all contemporary law, which have all now become law. 
It took 100 years, though. It took more than 100 years. Really, most of family law reform triggered 1970s, and so we had a very quick change. Um, but, you know, teaching family law, I, I had taught for many years. This all came about in 1970s, which seems very new and relatively new in the scope of history and seems sort of came out of Vietnam and hippie movement. But when you now see that all of these same reforms were advocated for 150 years before in a very different social time, I think they give meaning to sort of some some kind of underlying truths or some importance of how these reforms really were. So when you read her record, you're not particularly shocked because it really represents what we know as family law today. To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. I have started a new book project on Florence Allen. She was, we often call her the first woman judge. She was the first woman appointed to a federal appellate court, the Sixth Circuit. She was the first woman before that elected to a Supreme Court, the Ohio Supreme Court. And she was the first woman to be a sort of in a court of general jurisdiction, so a real trial judge. Um, It really kind of picks up where Stanton leaves off. Um, Allen's work starts in about 1910, 1915. Stanton died in 1902. Um, and it really picks up really one of Stanton's key legacies is that women need to enter the law. They need to be making the law and deciding the law, and that will change everything. Um, and we find out with Alan, it didn't quite change everything, but it did make a tremendous impact. I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thanks for having me.